The federal unemployment insurance program has been rife with fraud for decades. But Labor Department programs created for pandemic relief spawn so much new fraud, the department is opening 100 new investigative cases every week. We get details from the director of the Forensic Audits and Investigative Service at the Government Accountability Office, Sato Bagdoyan. And Sato, it seems like we're having you for the weekly fraud report these days. That's right, Tom. Thanks for having me back. Happy to oblige. And we could admire the number. I think it's $60 billion so far in fraud under the pandemic programs. But really, I think the important question is, what is the essential mechanism to prevent fraud that seemingly was not in place for a long time before the pandemic? Now the pandemic just gave new Petri dishes to the same bacteria. Exactly right. Yes. Uh, the estimate we have is a lower bound estimate, over $60 billion. We are, in fact, working on an updated one, also adding an upper bound. So just for context for your listeners. And yes, neither the Labor Department nor the states were prepared for what they encountered once the pandemic kicked in and the programs began dispensing assistance. They didn't have any of the fundamentals in fraud risk management. They hadn't done any assessments. They didn't have a strategy. What few controls there were, were turned off essentially to get the money out quickly under pressure of claims and political leaders and others. So it was a perfect storm basically of what not to do in these circumstances. And you've in the report, laid out some illustrative examples of fraud cases for unemployment insurance, and they all seem to have phony identities at the heart of it. And it seems yes. like that's where efforts should be concentrated is to somehow verify people are who they say they are. That's right. That is a fundamental fraud risk management control. Identity verification triggers everything else that follows the eligibility determination, the amount of the benefit to be paid, and also the duration of that benefit. So it is absolutely the first foremost control to help manage fraud risk. Now, this is a program typical of these types of programs where it is federal dollars allocated to states to disperse, correct? Well, actually, unemployment insurance is funded through state withholdings. In the pandemic, there was additional federal funding that was provided to enhance benefits for certain durations. So at its essence, this is a federal-state partnership but the funding burden in normal times lies with the states. Right. So it's not really necessarily a federal concern for the fraud levels prior to the pandemic? Well, it should be a federal concern because the Labor Department has, at, at a minimum, nominal oversight over the program. So labor is not absolved uh, of its responsibility. In fact, they were latecomers to the game after fraud became prevalent. Uh, there was pressure for labor to act. Uh, they did take some steps here and there. But those steps were reactive, they were ad hoc, they were not strategically organized and targeted at prioritized risks. All the fundamentals of fraud risk management, really none of them were in place. All right. So just to clarify then, prior programs that have been going for many, many years, state withholdings with DOL oversight. In the case of the pandemic unemployment insurance programs, that was congressional appropriations as part of all the pandemic spending that was rushed out. Yes. Right. That's the gist of it. Correct. Okay. So besides the ability to 
identify people? Is that the fundamental thing that's missing from these programs is simply verification of ID? Right. Yeah, that is part of it, certainly. But the overall fraud risk management structure, the capacity, if you will, is just not there. It hasn't been there. We made recommendations to that effect back in October of 2021 as part of our initial deep dive into unemployment insurance fraud risk. We made a number of recommendations to labor and 16 plus months hence, they have yet to act decisively. They have told us they are taking some action, but we don't know what the nature of those actions are. We have no insight whether they're the right ones, they're being done in the right sequence, uh, because it's a very deliberate process. You can't do certain things before other things happen and so on. We're speaking with Seto Bagdoyan, director of the Forensic Audits and Investigative Service at the GAO. Yes, he made 19 recommendations. And outside of the verification of ID, what are some of the other basics that have to be in place there? Yes, there are the basics, as you reference. Uh, First, you basically have to have a dedicated entity, some unit within labor, for example, that assumes the responsibility to build the capacity for fraud risk management. That is a fundamental. And then you go do fraud risk assessments. You develop a profile of risks, which is essentially the DNA of each risk. And then you feed into an anti-fraud strategy. You execute that. And part of the strategy is the sequencing of controls to verify identity, as I mentioned, establish eligibility, determine the amount to be paid, and the duration for which that amount will be paid. And is there any mechanism elsewhere in the government that labor could learn from? I'm thinking maybe CMS. I mean, they all have fraud. It's a matter of degree. And if you have 1%, that's the spillover you're going to get. Even though the numbers look big, it's still a small percentage. Social Security, I mean, there's a dozen big programs like that. There are big ticket programs. You're absolutely right. Many of them are still not where they need to be. Uh, CMS, uh, Center for Program Integrity, for example, has responded generally well to our recommendations over the years. So they are on the right track. And then another one, a much smaller entity, the Export-Import Bank of the United States, they really take this very seriously. And they've made considerable progress over the last three or four years of our reporting on their activities. And we have referred other agencies to them, sort of a standard setter, if you will, for how to do fraud risk management reasonably well. We're not looking for an absolute standard here. We're looking for a reasonable standard. Right. So getting back to the number of $60 billion in unemployment insurance fraud from the pandemic, those programs alone, what percentage does that represent? And do you have any sense of what your upper limit might be? Because that's what it usually ends up being. Right. So the over $60 billion number represents roughly between 7 to 8%, if my math is correct, of the total spend. We suspect the upper bound by definition will be higher. We are working on it diligently. We just obtained some more data from the Department of Labor that my methodologist colleagues, including the chief statistician, Jared Smith, and his team will be working diligently to create a new updated estimate that has a lower bound and an upper bound. And hopefully that will grab people's attention as to the extent of the problem that sets the stage for what needs to be done. Labor acting 
swiftly and decisively getting the states involved because, as I mentioned earlier, and you correctly pointed out, this is a federal-state partnership. Yes, and a week ago or so, your colleague, Rebecca Shea, appeared on the show. She made a comment that was kind of interesting. We weren't talking about unemployment insurance, but other pandemic relief programs that also had high levels of fraud. She said the tough thing about this, in some ways, is that it was maybe to a small degree, Russian gang hackers or Chinese or whatever the case might be. But mostly it was just Americans seeing an opportunity. And that was kind of a heartbreaking aspect of it. When it comes to unemployment insurance, that's almost all people here in the country just jumping in because they can get away with it. Well, there was a lot of money put out there very quickly with minimal controls. So what you ended up is attracting Anyone who had an inkling to take some of that money for themselves, then, of course, again, the the large amounts attracted international organized crime or freelancers anywhere from Russia, China, Nigeria, the usual suspect hotspots of just fraud criminality in general. And by the way, the Labor Department, as your report states, is opening 100 cases a week to investigate instances of fraud. So they're in heavy-duty find, prosecute, and clawback mode. But that only yields a small percentage, correct, of what it is that went out in the first place? Yeah, that's right. That's the Office of Inspector General, uh, Mr. Turner and his team. They are opening hundreds of cases as we speak. They probably have a backlog they're working through. But the clawback aspect of this is really just noise. You're not going to recover that money. Once it's gone, it's gone. These cases take a long time to adjudicate, and they're very complicated. You have to prove intent, and you have to pick your battles. You can't do everything. So that really underscores the need to be preventative, to be front-loaded, to manage this as best as you can so that you are not arguing about how bad the problem is at the tail end and then further pursuing you know, restitution or whatever else the adjudicative process yields. So yeah, it's just imperative that you do this right up front, uh, even if it slows things down, which is the main concern of agencies is, uh, yeah, we got to get the money out. If we lose some, that's the cost of doing business. Wow, what a cost. Seto Bagdoyan is Director of the Forensic Audits and Investigative Service at the GAO. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Have a good day. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.